This show is supported by another incredible confidence-boosting podcast, Women of Impact with Lisa Bilyeu. Lisa's story of how she went from zero confidence to becoming the co-founder of the billion-dollar Quest company and a best-selling author will inspire you no matter where you are on your journey. Listening to Women of Impact will give you the confidence to live life on your own terms without any excuses. From building confidence and setting boundaries to getting you from where you are to where you want to go, Lisa's show will help you get there. Tune in to Women of Impact with Lisa Bilyeu wherever you listen to podcasts. On today's episode of Mentally Stronger, can you explain what intergenerational trauma is? Yes, absolutely. So intergenerational trauma is the only type of trauma that's handed down the family line. And the reason being is because there's a biological component to intergenerational trauma as well as a psychological component to it. And the biological component is in essence comprised of the ways in which uh, our family members have they been in a state of trauma or prolonged trauma within their own lifetimes their biology would have registered that within their genetic encoding. And as a result, whenever um, our parents procreated us, that genetic makeup and those genetic markers would have translated onto us at conception. And beyond that, there are many other points in which, you know, from a biological Welcome to Mentally Stronger, the show that will help you develop the mental strength you need to reach your greatest potential, no matter what life throws your way. I'm Amy Morin, psychotherapist, mental strength trainer, and an international best-selling author of six books on mental strength. Every Monday, I introduce you to a guest whose story and expertise can inspire you to think, feel, and do your best in life. And the fun part is, we record it all from a sailboat in the Florida Keys. Welcome to 2024 and Happy New Year. I'm excited for another year of talking about how to build mental strength. And to kick off the new year, I'm starting with an important conversation about how to heal from intergenerational trauma. Personally, it took me a long time to connect a lot of the dots in my own life regarding my family history. I still don't have all the answers, but what I know now explains a lot of things about myself. Like many people, I don't have to go very far back into my family tree to find some not-so-great stories of abuse, violence, substance use, extreme poverty, suicide, and lots of other stuff. It's certainly not pleasant to think what my family has been through, but understanding it more helps me understand myself better. The things your parents, your grandparents, and your ancestors went through will affect you. Even if you didn't witness the traumatic events or the hardships firsthand, it's imprinted in your DNA. But that doesn't mean you're doomed. In fact, it means you have an opportunity to be the generation who creates positive change. No one knows this better than my good friend, Dr. Marielle Bouquet. She's a psychologist and the author of an amazing new book called Break the Cycle, A Guide to Healing Intergenerational Trauma. Some of the things she talks about today are why trauma often gets compounded over generations, the steps to breaking intergenerational cycles, and how to also honor the strength and resilience of previous generations. Make sure to stick around until the end of the episode for the therapist take. It's the part of the show where I'll break down Dr. Bouquet's strategies and share how you can start applying them to your life today. So here's Dr. Marielle Bouquet, 
on how to heal from intergenerational trauma and stop the cycle. Dr. Marielle Bouquet, welcome to Mentally Stronger. Thank you, Amy. It's such a joy to join you. Thank you for having me. I'm excited about your new book called Break the Cycle because I think it will fill in a lot of missing pieces for people who will say, you know, I've, I've always wondered why I'm struggling with this certain thing, or I wonder why, despite talking about these issues, they, they haven't gotten better yet. You talk about intergenerational trauma, and I think that's something a lot of people haven't really looked at before, really never considered. Can you explain what intergenerational trauma is? Yes, absolutely. So intergenerational trauma is the only type of trauma that's handed down the family line. And the reason being is because there's a biological component to intergenerational trauma as well as a psychological component to it. And the biological component is, in essence, comprised of the ways in which uh, our family members have they been in a state of trauma or prolonged trauma within their own lifetimes their biology would have registered that within their genetic encoding. And as a result, whenever um, our parents procreated us, that genetic makeup and those genetic markers would have translated onto us at conception. And beyond that, there are many other points in which, you know, from a biological standpoint, we're also ingesting a lot of the social cues from our family members that the world is not okay or safe around them, including when we're in utero inside of our grandmother's wombs. When when our parents were actually just five months old, but still inside of the womb, and they had developed into a five-month-old embryo, our grandmother's um, well, our, that embryo had already produced the precursor sex cells that would have later developed into who we are now. And so we were, in essence, like three generations living in one body, our grandmothers, our parents, and us all in one body, taking in all of the external stimuli and stressors and stress hormones and all of the things that were happening that could have altered the genetic makeup of all three generations in one shot. And then you have, um, you know, the psychology that I, I'm sure we'll get into a lot more, but the biology is really a lot of what sets intergenerational trauma apart from others. I'm curious, why do you think that we haven't really talked about this? Like, I feel like for so much, and even as a therapist, for so much of what we talk about, we'll often ask, like, did your mother have a lot of stress during her pregnancy with you? But we really don't go back much further than that. Mm-hmm. You know, I, in part, I think it's because the science had been so new, especially when both you and I were in that process of uh, being trained um, to be therapists, right? Like we only had a specific, we only had almost kind of like anecdotal data, which is important data and probably the most important data that we still do have in the therapy room. Um, and even in conversations with one another, healing conversations with one another, that helps us to understand, okay, this is something that has been in the family line for well over one generation or well over many generations. But because um, we haven't had really a very concretized lens to understand intergenerational trauma and understand it from both the biological and psychological aspects and then understand how to translate that into clinical interventions, we haven't had the training for many of us in, in this field to actually then 
inquire about the generational um, through line of pain and then actually help our clients do something about that pain. And then something interesting happens, I think, is most generations want to do better than the last, right? And we think, oh, you know, I'm going to make things better for my kids compared to how I had it. So what I see a lot of, and I've experienced in my own life, is you get to the third generation, and people are like, well, I don't really have a right to complain because compared to how my parents grew up or compared to how my grandparents grew up who had it really rough, my life is pretty good. So why am I still struggling with these things? Mm. Yeah, you know, so there is a biological explanation for that. Um, but then, but I'd also like to almost kind of start not in the biology, but really um, in the psychology, which, you know, many of us, we have kind of what might be even considered like intergenerational um, survivor's guilt or like this guilt around like leaving our families behind or, or believing that we shouldn't be in pain because our pain is not comparable to the people that came before us because they may have, you know, undergone like extreme famine and here we are always feeling nourished and, you know, having day-to-day occurrences that may not compare. Um, but the thing to understand about intergenerational trauma and trauma proper, just trauma, is that it is the way that a person internalizes and metabolizes stress and metabolizes the occurrences in their lives. And for some of us, those occurrences are daily onslaughts of of trauma that makes it so that a a person is living in that state of trauma. Like if if the trauma has been acute enough or chronic, meaning longstanding, then it makes it so that your internal capacities to cope with that trauma or with that traumatic event is tapped out eventually. And because we're human, we're going to then resort to coping mechanisms that are marked by survival mode, right? Um, So that's, you know, one aspect of it. But the other aspect that's more biological to understand is that some of what we're understanding now through more of the biological sciences, all of the neuropsychologies, the uh, cellular biology sciences and, and epigenetics, a lot of the sciences are telling us people who come from lines of trauma, the trauma as it's passed down gets compounded. So, you know, a lot of times I hear people talk about, especially this upcoming generation, how they're so sensitive and so tender. And it makes me think about that intergenerational through line. Like we have had a lot of lineages of pain that have not gone on addressed. And with each generation, that pain gets compounded on top of the other. And it makes us more and more and more tender with time. That's interesting because I think we often think, again, people should be getting better because their lives are easier. Maybe they are, but that makes sense then that the pain is compounded and the trauma adds up over years and different generations. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's something that I think if we add that to the language of our conversations, it can make us have a lot greater compassion for each other through the generations. When we're having those generational conversations, you know, at the family table or, you know, in gatherings or or even if it's just two members of a family that, that are distant generations and, and one just doesn't understand, right? Like it's important to integrate this knowledge so that people can say, oh, okay, there's an actual explanation that's both biological and psychological that I can hold on to. That makes a ton of sense. I've heard horror stories of what my grandparents grew up with. 
And my grandparents did much better than the previous generation. My grandparents still had some issues that my parents grew up with. Both of my parents had really hard childhoods. They got together and decided, hey, we're going to make it much easier for our kids. My childhood in comparison was a cakewalk. But I have some quirks about me. And I think if I were to look back and think, wow, why was I such an anxious kid? It kind of makes sense when you look at it from, from that standpoint. And when we pass things down, it's not always the exact same behavior that we pass down, right? Grandpa may have been a violent person, but dad, who grew up in a violent situation, maybe then struggles with substance abuse. And then maybe by the time you get to the third generation, they struggle with being people pleasers, right? It's not always the exact same thing that gets passed down. No, it's not. It is just a nervous system survival mode that is, in essence, passed down. Sometimes modeled behavior does get passed down. Like if grandpa used to numb with alcohol, there is a, a chance that, you know, um, his daughter would have also in, ingested that kind of coping mechanism because she was able to see when an emotion feels too overwhelming, I can actually escape that emotion through a substance. However, you know, more often than not, what we tend to see are survival modes in families that don't necessarily mirror each other, but actually feed off each other. There, you know, if, if grandpa was, let's say, you know, someone that was an externalizer and was stuck in fight mode, he was always fighting and, and always berating people around him when he felt minimal stress or high level stress, then it's a likely chance that his son would have actually absorbed the survival mechanism of shutting down in order to survive the moment of intense rage that his father was actually undergoing on a continuous basis. And that emotional shutdown would have likely led to him not actually being very attuned with his own emotions and then parenting his daughter from a very detached place and his daughter having to, you know, almost kind of like um, also like flee her own emotions in order to not actually deal with the profound anxiety that that sense of emotional abandonment brought her in reference to her father. So the, the actual coping mechanisms can look different generation to generation, but they feed off each other and they're actually interconnected. Let's pause for a minute for a quick word from our sponsor. Brainstorm. What's something that works so well that it's basically magic? Air conditioning? Noise-canceling headphones? Meeting-free Fridays? What about selling with Shopify? <coughs> Shopify is a global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the did we just hit a million dollars stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash mentally stronger, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash mentally stronger now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash mentally stronger. An electrolyte imbalance can cause headaches, fatigue, cramps, brain fog, and weakness. I know because I learned the hard way. Like a lot of people, I avoid eating too much processed food and I drink plenty of water. 
which is healthy, but it also depletes your brain and your body of the sodium that they need to function at their best. So I started drinking Element, a zero sugar electrolyte drink mix that's free of artificial colors and other dodgy ingredients. Having my electrolytes back in balance has cured my brain fog and I have a lot more energy. I love all the flavors like watermelon salt, but now I'm also a fan of the new Element Chocolate Medley, which is meant to be enjoyed hot. My favorite flavor is chocolate mint. I love to drink it in the cool evenings on my sailboat. If you wanna see how much better Element can make you feel, try it risk-free. Order it for yourself, and if you don't like it, give it away, and they'll give you your money back, no questions asked. And right now, members of the Mentally Stronger community can receive a free Element sample pack with any order. Just go to drinkelement.com stronger to claim your sample pack. That's drinklmnt.com stronger. And how important do you think it is for our healing to be able to connect some of those thoughts of like, okay, I was raised by somebody who struggled with this. Perhaps this is why. Do we need to connect those dots or can we heal without really fully knowing? You know, we don't need the full picture, but I do, in, I do believe that we need to have some dots connected. And the reason being is because I do believe that we cannot heal what we cannot see. If we are in a in a perpetual cycle of engaging in re- like romantic partnerships that have the same flavor, right? And we're just not noticing why is it that I quote unquote attach to these types of people? Why do I attract these types of people? And we're not really taking internal inventory of the fact that this type of relationship with its toxic elements looks a lot like what I grew up seeing and believing was the norm. And I internalized that as, as a subconscious norm that I've never disrupted. And that's why I, I see that as a place that feels like home. And when people have those qualities, I attach to them much more quickly. Then, you know, if we don't have that landscape of knowledge, then we're not going to be able to really like get into the next phase of the work, which is integration. And the integration part of the work is when you start absorbing someone else's, um, you know, love and, and, and connecting with a new potential partner, that you're going to have a conscious understanding of where the unhealthy patterns lie, where they came from, how they, what they look like, so that you don't then continue that replication process. So I do believe that that data collection process of understanding what has happened and transpired in our lineages is important for us to then disrupt the cycles uh, that we continue to perpetuate unconsciously. So how do we go about that? How would somebody who says, you know, I'm pretty sure there's been some trauma in my family, and maybe you've heard little snippets of it like I have in my family. There's snippets that I know of. How do you go about kind of connecting the dots and figuring that out? You know, I I, I think that um, much of the integration process tends to be, it, it kind of is a little bit of the less heavy part of the work. The heavier part of the work is always the digging. It's the digging into the family tree, digging into the soil and what's feeding the roots and like all these things that are like making it so that these traumas perpetuate within our families. The integration is really, it's it's almost like glimmers of insight that come up in day-to-day life. Once you already know and understand, these are the trauma responses that have transpired in my family tree. 
these are the ways that I myself have been a cycle keeper and have engaged in these kinds of trauma responses. When we start getting into, you know, like um, if you're a people pleaser and you're someone who um, has built a very profound relationship with a friend who, for whom you do a lot of things, but you kind of get no reciprocation, um, but you believe that you must give and you must appease in order to feel love because that's the general narrative you internalize from childhood, then it's going to be really important for when in therapy we see you going what what you might call the extra mile for this friend yet again, but then subsequently you feel profound exhaustion because that's what trauma does to us. It makes us feel tired, even though we're thinking we're acting from a place of um, you know, like keeping a relationship alive, then we have to get, we start digging into the um, the ways in which the, the cycle is perpetuating in that instant. So we start understanding, okay, you know what? I, I think we may be looking at some of those appeasing or people-pleasing qualities that were a part of what you thought you needed to do in order to receive love from your caregivers. I'm seeing a, a flavor of that showing up here. Can we talk about it? Can we can we break it down? And can we seek out alternative ways of you being able to show up for this friendship while not doing so in the disservice of yourself? Do you recommend that people ask their parents questions or if their grandparents are still around that they ask them questions about perhaps what they experienced? I do. I really wholeheartedly do. Um, I believe that we shouldn't leave them behind. I believe that they deserve some, even if it's a microscopic form of healing, that they deserve that too. Some, some of our parents, some, some, you know, distant ancestors, great grandparents, people like that. Um, and me, maybe even like laterally, like siblings, like some people in our family line and some people in our communities will not be able to have the conversation or they are, they may be very intentional about insisting on the behaviors that they have perpetuated. And my suggestion to folks is usually, you know, if you, if you feel like there is a complete and utter wall there and, and you won't be able to penetrate it in any way, it might not do you well to actually enter conversations like that with these individuals. But for the individuals for whom you see that there is even a microscopic window, why not? My, my um, oldest client was 84 years old. And I worked with this person for a few years, actually. And 84 was the year when I first started working with him. And it, it was just a beautiful reminder of we can heal at any age. And I do this work with my parents and I, I help integrate even tiny lessons into their lives that they can internalize should they wish to. And, and then what I always tell people is that whatever else cannot be remedied, grieve it. Allow yourself to just grieve that part and, and you know, sit with the loss of their lost childhood, sit with the loss of um, understanding that their pain could not be remedied entirely uh, by you, uh, sit with the understanding that they may continue to perpetuate harmful behaviors and, and you won't be able to change that before they pass. And we have to sit with that reality and welcome in 
the authentic understanding of who our families truly are with their own pain. That makes a lot of sense. And I think it's tough to do, right? For several reasons. One is, I think for somebody to sit down with their mother or their father and hear stories of what their childhood was like that were, were not good, that's tough. And if you really love your parents, the thought of them going through that when they were 10 years old would be really tough to hear. And, and perhaps tough for your parents to, to talk about too, because who wants to dig that up? But on the other hand, I think it could explain a lot. Yeah, you know, and it, it's it's also about taking care of ourselves while we do the digging work, which is why the first part of, you know, my my work is always to to ground and to find the specific ways in which healing can happen in the body and to center a person on their generational resilience so that when we start doing the digging work, when we start doing the integration work, which is where most of these conversations start surfacing, then there's an opportunity to reground. There's an opportunity to go back to the healthy coping that is necessary to like to to stay well, um, because yeah, it is it is really sad. My mother actually she would always tell this story, um, and she would tell it while she's laughing, but <laughs> you know because of course like she has her own ways of coping, and she you know she used humor to cope through those really hard circumstances where she grew up in deep poverty, such deep poverty that actually she had you know family members that passed from malnourishment um and you know she was talking to me about three King's days what they celebrate in the Dominican Republic uh, as opposed to other holidays that where you gift people things and she went to her godmother's home and when she went, the godmother told her that one of the three king's camels legs broke and she was not, they were not able to come and she subsequently would not be getting gifts. Um, and this was kind of like the the general narrative of like her not being able to get this doll that she desired so much. And, you know, my sister and I, we just sat there just listening Um giving her a hug through it. I mean, I'm sure that she's never gotten a chance to, one, tell the story, two, be nourished while telling it. And now this year, my sister and I are actually coordinating. It's her idea, actually. I'm not going to take credit for it, but she's actually building her a doll that looks like my mother um, to gift to her um, because, you know, this was what she never she never received. And she's 71. And so it's it's a moment in which we can actually give back even the tiniest bit um, by listening also to what they have to say and the stories that were never told. I'm glad you said that, like, in terms of how it sometimes is used as a joke. I was thinking about in my own family, it's like there are secrets that are obvious to anybody on the outside looking in, like somebody's dad might not be their dad or something like that in the family, in the extended family, and it's pretty obvious, but nobody talks about it. But on the other hand, we'd be like casually eating dinner and somebody would throw out this comment and almost like a joke. And it's all, wait, what? <laughs> like, what do you mean that this, you know, so-and-so was sent away for four years and there's like something going on? Like, wait, what? But yet, you know, nobody really would sit down and explain the story or, or talk about it on a deeper level other than perhaps making it as a joke or just a, a casual comment as if these things were normal. Mm-hmm. And we have so many variations of those coping mechanisms inside of our families. My family is very much a humor family. We use the humor defense. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's our collective defense for sure. And I know that there's others that other families use. And um, 
and it seems like humor is, humor is yours as well in some capacity. Um, but I also know that vulnerability, um, that breeds connection. And, and it makes us capable of feeling closer to one another. And a lot of us, without saying it explicitly, we are craving that connection. We are craving to be closer. Sometimes when we have these hard conversations and we have these blow-ups, we are not having these blow-ups because we desire for the other person to feel bad. We're having them because we want people to take accountability, for, for people to tell us, no, I do love you, but even if I never said it, and for people to feel deeper connection. But it just, those conversations go awry, right? But the the underlying desire for many of us, even in those humor defense moments, is to breed connection, is for harmony. And so if we can be willing to have the hard conversations, um, even if we're, if it's not possible with a family member, have the hard conversations with ourselves, like really dig deep into ourselves and, and really like, you know, no longer mask our pain, but really work with it, um, I think we would be in a much different world. I think so, too. Let's pause for a minute for a quick word from our sponsor. What's the best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a new language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's been teaching me Spanish, which is widely spoken in South Florida. I can now carry on conversations with my Spanish-speaking neighbors without having to use Google Translate. Babbel has already taught me a lot more than I ever learned in Spanish class in high school. Studies from Yale, Michigan State University, and others continue to prove Babbel is better, One study found that using Babbel for 15 hours is equivalent to a full semester at college. Babbel has over 16 million subscriptions sold. Plus, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get 55% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash stronger. Get 55% off at babbel.com slash stronger, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash stronger. Rules and restrictions may apply. I live on a sailboat, which means my closet is pretty small. So I try to make sure the clothes I put in it are things I'm actually going to wear. But I need comfortable clothes to wear when I work from home, dress clothes to wear for speaking engagements, and athletic clothes to wear to the gym. The solution to finding everything I need has been quince. Like the washable silk tank top I got for $50 and the cotton tank tops for just $15. Their clothing is affordable and high quality. The best part, all quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands. By partnering directly with top factories, quince cuts out the cost of the middleman and passes the savings on to us. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices and premium fabrics and finishes. I love that. Indulge in affordable luxury. Go to quince.com stronger for free shipping on your order and 365-day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com stronger to get free shipping and 365-day returns. Quince.com stronger. 
What about for somebody who says my, my grandparents are gone, perhaps your parents are passed away or somebody who's adopted, how do they figure some of these things out if they can't directly ask mom or grandma? You know, uh, the people that have been in our lives extensively left behind clues about how they responded to stress. I'm sure that we can all go back to moments in our infancy and think about moments when our parents were really stressed and what they did and what they did not do. And that already is data that we hold within us. We don't necessarily need to, you know, go back and ask if the person is estranged or if the person is no longer in, in living form, then we we have opportunity to just kind of dig into the layers of the clues that they left behind. Um, so I think that there is, there you know, work that can be done that way. There's also work that can be done, you know, with other people in our families. My aunt uh, was the one that told me a, a lot of my mother's history because my mother, um, uh, she recalled events in a way that helped her to preserve her ego, right? Like helped her to to feel um, like it wasn't that bad. Uh, so, you know, my aunt was able to like really kind of relay some of the stories of the past to us. And the same with like, I have a cousin who helped me fill some of my family tree and she's my age and she, she and I, you know, like she knows the paternal side. I know the maternal side. Right. And so we're like, you know, kind of like getting a sense of, okay, these are the things that happen. And we as fellow cycle breakers, we are like, okay, this is the way that we're going to behave in this generation and moving forward not just because our parents and grandparents didn't do X. It's because in part, we're honoring them by actually living differently. And I think that that's a beautiful way in which a generational gift can be passed back. So what do we do? Let's say you connect some of the dots, like, okay, this generation was filled with with violence, the next generation substance abuse, the next generation perhaps people pleasers or um, people that really struggled. If I want to break the cycle, what are the first steps I'm going to take? The very first thing that's important to do with breaking cycles is always to take a really good chunk of time to work on how you settle yourself, your nervous system, how you engage in holistic practices that help to heal you and really integrate almost kind of like a holistic lifestyle into your life. Uh, It's about maybe for the first time ever introducing meditation in the understanding that even from a neurological standpoint, meditation has been proven to actually help us to forge neural pathways that can actually be health promoting. So, you know, like doing the the meditative practice, like for five minutes in a day, doing deep breathing and um, engaging in, you know, um, with earth in ways that are grounding and and loving and like all the things that are going to be really essential just to live a life that perhaps is, you know, anti-2023 with all the technology and noise, um, but but can really be really healthy for us. So that's going to be a, a large part of the, the initial work. Beyond that, once we do a, a lot of that digging, what needs to happen is the integration and the remembrance of these are the, the kinds of cycles that I'm hoping to disrupt. Um, when I did a, a book talk recently, I actually had the cycle breakers in the room right on a leaf. Uh, there's a sticky note that looks like a leaf, which is adorable. And I had, I had them write, you know, what is a legacy that you're hoping to keep and, and, and continue? And so a lot of the work beyond disrupting and breaking cycles and saying, I'm not going to hit my kids if I was 
you know, uh, punished uh, physically when I was a child. I'm not going to, um, you know, scream at the top of my lungs and create this abundant fear in my children, right? Like, or I'm not going to, you know, um, continue to perpetuate into relationships that have codependency at the center, right? Like, and so you're, you're consciously disrupting and writing down that disruption so that you can offer yourself a reminder. But beyond that, we're also writing down legacies and what we hope to hold on to. I, my parents, my father specifically recently told me, you know, we didn't, we haven't had much because we were economically very poor, but what we have had is an inheritance of love. And I, and I feel like that love, that profound love, those big hugs and kisses. And we say, I love you when we greet each other. We say, I love you when we leave the house. We say, I love you, drive safe. When we're seeing, you know, we're saying goodbye and someone's in the car, there's always an I love you because we had this longstanding separation and we never really knew if we would be able to say that to each other ever again. So now we hold on to that, that loving statement um, in a very profound way. And that's an inheritance that I want to pass on myself. And so we, we, you know, we do the integration work by disrupting, but we also hold on to the legacies that we wish to be a part of our, our lineage. I like that too, of saying, what am I going to hold on to? And my sister's a therapist as well. And we occasionally have these conversations of like, we came from some messed up people, as did I think most of us. If you were to look back a couple generations you don't have to look very far to find violence, substance use, mental illness, lots of issues, suicide. And, and it's pretty easy in our family to be like, gosh, you know, like how did, how did this all come to be? But, but we also have conversations of, we came from some pretty amazing people who survived some incredibly difficult things. And while yes, they weren't perfect, on the other hand, there's some pretty tough people that managed to get through and survive what they survived. And Putting that spin on it, too, has also been helpful to say, clearly, we've got some good things going on that we're still here. And I like the idea then of saying, and what do we want to pass on? Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of legacy to be created and a lot of abundance that can come from us. And my sister and I, she's actually a, a retired social worker. And I, myself being a psychologist, we have those like very heady conversations as well. <laughs> and we always, we talk, we say, your mother, your mother did this today, you know, your uh -huh. father. And so we, we always have those conversations as well. And and we um, we coach each other through it. And we also continue to hold on to shared legacies that she and I want to hold on to, and then our own individual legacies that we hold each other accountable for. Because I suspect siblings can be another great source. And while I know plenty of siblings who were raised in the same house have completely different experiences, and if you were ask them about their childhood based on their, their gender, birth order, all sorts of things, they may have been raised slightly differently, or they just came at a different time in, in their parents' lives, so they they were treated differently. Who knows? But sometimes just bouncing things off of a sibling to be like, you know, did you ever hear this story? Or was this your experience? I think can be quite enlightening too. Yeah, and it can be a loving moment. Like my sister, like I always say, I am my sister's keeper. And I, my sister actually was a parentified child who, because my mother had to work, multiple jobs. My father was not here because of immigration law. She uh, she had to, in essence, like raise me. She spent most of the day with me after school. And 
I now do everything in my power, not only to pour love into my sister, but to give her some of her life back. I retired my sister on purpose because I wanted her to live a life that was softer and more abundant. Um, and it's one of my most proud experiences in life, the, the capacity to be able to give her some element of her life back with a childhood that was taken away. And so I think that, you know, also siblings, we can do loving things for one another that can be a part of that legacy building. I love that because it's also about honoring the fact that, yeah, your sister's childhood was different from yours. Here was her experience. And then how can you support your sibling moving forward? I love that. Yeah, I got to be a kid. I got to go away to college. I got to get my doctorate and my sister stayed behind working and helping mom, you know. And so um, when when I look at everything that I've been able to accomplish, my sister's always at the center of that. And it's why I dedicated my book to her because she has indeed been, you know, that hub in our family. And I, I want her to be able to feel um, that she she matters. She's She has worth. And, and I think we can do that for our siblings and forge those connections that can also be a part of the legacy we create. I think so too. So then last question for you, if we become cycle breakers, like what are the positive benefits? What can we expect? Oh my goodness. Uh, well, we can have a whole episode on this. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> well, for one, you know, cycle breaking, despite it being such hard work, it does eventually feel like more peace. And I can't think of any human that I've ever come across that didn't want that for themselves. Uh, we all want peace, not just for ourselves, but cycle breakers typically are able to also elicit peace in the people around them because they're showing up, not from a dis, you know, com almost kind of dysregulated state, but more a, a, of a, a calmer nervous system and a, a, a settled place where they can actually forge better connections. Um but also, you know, cycle breaking has this beautiful impact upon our communities, too, because a lot of cycle breakers are people who want to also share the wealth of knowledge of how cycles can be broken. And, and so there is that, too, that you can see that people in your extended community also get to benefit from the work that you do internally. But I think one of the, the most visible parts of cycle breaking is that you see it in the next generation. So for anybody who's a parent or preemptive parent um, or grandparent even, that you can see that the next generation embodies a mental fortitude, um, which I know you're you're big on, right? <laughs> I mean, right. I, and it's so important, right, for all of us. Um, emotional intelligence, like generational resilience and the capacity to sort through problems that perhaps would have been a little bit more difficult for us. There's just so much that can happen cross-generationally when we break these cycles. Well, Dr. Marielle Bouquet, thank you so much for being on Mentally Stronger. I hope that all of our listeners go pick up a copy of Break the Cycle. Thank you, Amy. I hope so too. And I hope that a lot of cycle breakers come out of this season. I, I think they will. <laughs> Welcome to The Therapist Take. Let's break down Dr. Bouquet's tips and talk about how you can apply them to your life today. Number one, learn about your family history. You might think you know your family's history, but I suspect there may be some serious missing pieces. In my own family, I'd heard stories or snippets about things, and it wasn't until I was an adult that I was able to identify there was obviously more to this story. A quick example is, like I'd always grown up being told my grandmother had a chemical imbalance. It wasn't until I was an adult that I realized it was actually schizophrenia that we were talking about. 
I still don't know a lot about my family history. And if my mom were alive, I would love to talk to her about her side of the family more because what I know now certainly helps me understand many things a lot better. So I encourage you to gather some of your family history if you can. You might recognize some patterns in the family, or you might come to better understand yourself when you know what happened to people in the older generations. Number two, examine the patterns in your life. You might find that looking at your own struggles or patterns can be explained by your intergenerational trauma. Your anxiety might be because you were raised by a veteran with PTSD. Or you might struggle with being a people pleaser because you have a family history of substance use. Connecting the dots might give you a little relief. It's not meant to give you an excuse like, hey, I can't help it that I struggle with this, but it might give you an explanation. And a better understanding might open some new ideas about how you can create positive change. And number three, identify what you want to pass on to the next generation. You might find several things you want to ensure that you don't pass on, but it's also important to think about the things you want to leave as your legacy. There are likely traumas in your family that you don't want to pass on, but there may also be strengths that you might want to carry forward. There are so many tools that you can use to heal, like yoga, therapy, breathing exercises, medication, or a combination of lots of things. And if you're proactive about creating positive change in your family tree, you can work on finding what works for you. So those are three of Dr. Bouquet's strategies that I highly recommend. Learn about your family history, examine the patterns in your life, and identify what you want to pass on to the next generation. To hear more of Dr. Bouquet's tips, pick up a copy of her book, Break the Cycle. Thank you for hanging out with me today and for listening to the Mentally Stronger podcast. If you like the show, leave us a review on Apple or Spotify. That's one of the best ways to help us get our show in front of other people so that we can make the world a stronger place. And if you want more tips on building mental strength, subscribe to Mentally Stronger Premium. You'll get weekly bonus episodes where I answer your questions about everything from relationship issues and addictions to family dilemmas and mental health issues. You'll also get access to our private community where you can get support for building the mental strength you want to become your best. Sign up at mentallystronger.supercast.com or just click on the link in the show notes. If you know someone who could benefit from learning more about mental strength, share this show with them. Simply sharing a link to this episode could help someone feel better and grow stronger. And as always, a big thank you to my show's producer, who has just as many cousins as he does pairs of shoes, Nick Valentine. Wouldn't you love to bounce out of bed feeling fantastic, even on a Monday morning? Well, the 5 a.m. Miracle Podcast is meant to help you do just that. It's hosted by productivity junkie, trail marathoner, and banana enthusiast, Jeff Sanders. The 5 a.m. Miracle wants to help you dominate your day before you eat breakfast. It will also help you create powerful lifelong habits and teach you how to tackle your biggest goals with extraordinary energy. Every Monday morning, Jeff shares actionable, practical advice on a different personal growth topic. He's conducted hundreds of interviews with high achievers over the years. Some of his recent episodes include 
the top 10 work-from-home tools, and the top seven productivity strategies before bed. Subscribe to the 5 a.m. Miracle with Jeff Sanders in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media, and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion, and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests, like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs, Alex and Layla Hermosi, and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's gonna push your life forward. I do my research, I get straight to the point, and I take things really seriously, which is why I'm known as the podcast princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. As long as you wanna learn and level up, you will be forever young. So join podcast royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast or Yap, like it's often called by my Yap fam on Apple, Spotify, CastBox, or wherever you listen to your podcasts.